0: How's everybody doing today? Awesome. Well, we like to start every Sunday with saying welcome to anybody that's joining us here in our room for the first time here in the sanctuary, or if you're joining us online for the first time. We want to say welcome to all of you. We're so glad you're here to worship with us today. I am Pastor Nathan, and this morning, we are stepping away from the judgment and the horror of the last moments of the tribulation period to witness the biggest, grandest, most joyous celebration of all time. It's the great celebration that Christians of all ages have looked forward to from the very moment they said yes to Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior. Today we're looking at the marriage feast of the Lamb in Revelation 19. And this is awesome. This is the culmination of everything. This is the culmination of the engagement that we are now a part of. This is the picture of the promise to come. It is everything we are looking forward to, you know, and I I, I believe that that every believer, and if you don't, um, maybe pray to get there, but every believer longs for heaven. We long for the day when we're no longer here, but we're with him, when we're free from the 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 challenges and the difficulties and the issues of this life, and we're in heaven in perfection, in joy, face-to-face with our Creator and our Savior. And that is really what makes heaven, heaven. It's Jesus. Jesus is what makes heaven, heaven. Jesus, being face-to-face with Him is it that's what we're looking forward to you know it's it's not the the golden streets or the crowns we will be wearing it's not the the mansions that it talks about as he says i'm going to go to prepare a place for you it's jesus it's him it's his presence and us being there with him that is what makes heaven heaven and it's very similar to the picture of of what makes any marriage a marriage right when two people are coming together in marriage The marriage isn't the house. It's not about the car, the animals, the pets, the dogs, the cats, the stuff. It's not about any of that. A marriage is about the people, the couple, the two that have come together, the two people who have committed to one another as we do here on earth in poverty or in wealth, in sickness or in health. You know, the last handful of months we've been going through prophetically what we, the church, are never going to have to go through historically as we have been studying this great tribulation period. And we've studied now through the whole tribulation period as it has been revealed to the Apostle John. Every little detail of this period of time, this last seven years of earth's history, referred to collectively as the Day of the Lord. Our study started of this time with the scroll being taken by the Lamb from the right hand of the Father, And then we saw each of those seven seals broken, one after the other, each ushering in judgment from God upon an earth and a people that had embraced sin and rejected him. Then we saw the seven blasts from the seven trumpets, each one a continuing escalation of the judgments of God as they fell upon the earth. Then we saw the seven bowls of judgment poured out on the earth, and as we studied that when that seventh bowl was poured out, that was it. It was over. It was done. Tribulation, the day of the Lord, all of the destruction and horror of God's judgments upon the earth and upon mankind were now finished. And so here in Revelation 19, now we get to the good stuff. We get to the good stuff. We get to much that stands in huge contrast to what we've been studying And today, as we look at the first 10 verses of Revelation 19, we're going to see a scene that is taking place exclusively in heaven. A beautiful picture. A picture of our future as believers, as those who have trusted Jesus Christ for our salvation. A beautiful picture of what's to come for all who believe in Jesus Christ. And it's amazing. But first, we're going to worship him because we're not there yet. We're looking forward to this day, but today we do get to praise our God for his just awesomeness, his almighty nature, his love. I mean, there is so much to praise Jesus for here and now in this life as we look forward to that day where we're reunited with him face to face. So let's pray, and then let's worship. Father God, we love you so much. We're so grateful. Lord, we look forward to the day where we get to stand with you Lord, where this relationship that, that you have characterized as a, as, a, as a marriage, Lord, God, where this relationship is fully brought together, fully um, it reaches its full conclusion, God, Lord, where we are united with you forever in paradise, face-to-face forever, God, in joy. And Lord, as we look at this picture today of this moment to come, God, we're going to see such great celebration. We're going to see such joy. We're going to see just overwhelming hallelujah. And God, we're so excited. Lord, I know some of us in this life, as we live through this life, even as believers, sometimes we could lose sight of this marriage feast to come. And we could get caught up in the difficulties and the challenges. And Lord, I pray today, God, your spirit, as your spirit falls upon your people, that we would have a renewed excitement as we're reminded again at the future to come for those who have trusted in you lord bless us today speak to us today we love you so much it's in jesus name we pray amen all right we are in revelation chapter 19 and i can't think of a better portion of scripture to be able to teach on thanksgiving week you know weddings are definitely moments of great celebration. I'm sure all of us have been to a wedding at one point or another. Um, There's just so much joy and and just excitement that happens at a wedding. Myself, um, I'm not married. I am happily, contentedly single. Just throwing that out there. Okay. Um, Open to whatever God wants. But over the course of my life, I've had the opportunity to be a best man eight times. I've officiated numerous weddings at this point as a pastor. I've even emceed and DJ'd a couple of receptions, and I think in at least one occasion, I did all four in the same wedding. So, um, you know, the common thread that I've always seen in wedding celebrations is joy. There's just so much joy. There's so much celebration and exuberant emotion and excitement and activity. Yeah, there's stress and there's nerves and all that, but the joy that comes in a marriage celebration, a joining of two people is just amazing. And today in Revelation 19, John records for us the heavenly multitudes praising God as the marriage feast of the Lamb is about to begin. Now the context of this, uh, however, needs to be understood through the wedding customs of the day because wedding customs do change from culture to culture and they kind of change over over time and and, um, regardless of the time and the culture and all of that, There are some elements that are uh, commonly seen across all of that. Weddings uh, commonly have attendance, right? There's a public that is there. There's friends and family and co-workers there to to witness this wedding, to be a part of it. Obviously, there's the groom and the bride and the the, um, uh, bridesmaids and the groomsmen and all of that. But then as the course of the whole thing, there's song, there's music, there's this joyous celebration. And in Revelation 19, 1 through 10, we see all of that. However, as we will see later, the cultural lens of Jewish wedding customs at the time give this whole thing just a, a, a beautifully rich and deep Um, application to our lives today, even beyond what you might be familiar with in modern wedding uh, customs. But in every marriage ceremony that I've had the privilege to officiate, I always open with a few lines. And I say this, marriage is not the invention of man, but of God. Its purpose resides within the purpose and plans of God. It's to honor God because it was created by God for the glory of God. And that's what marriage is really all about. This is what Ephesians chapter 5 teaches us as Paul, through this wonderful chapter, gives very practical instruction to husbands and wives here on earth. But after Paul gives this very practical instruction, in Ephesians chapter 5 verse 32, regarding marriage in general, this is what he says. This mystery is profound, but I am talking about Christ." and the church. And the first part of Revelation 19 gives us a glimpse into this mystery that he's talking about here and what it all means. And so read with me in Revelation chapter 19 starting in verse 1. John says, After this I heard something like, a, like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven singing, Hallelujah! Salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because His judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. Then the 24 elders, <clears throat> excuse me, and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen, Hallelujah a voice came from the throne saying, Praise our God, all his servants, and the ones who fear him, both small and great. Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters and like the rumbling of loud thunder saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Let us be glad, rejoice, and give him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and his bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then he said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. He also said to me, these words of God are true. Then I fell at his feet to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. You know, you open this section there, John says in verse 1, after this, after all the lamenting and the wailing and the woe, woe at the fall of Babylon the Great that we've been studying through Revelation chapter 17 and 18, after all of this, after this judgment, this final pouring out of God's wrath against sin and, and, and mankind's stubborn rejection of him, his, his judgment poured out on the Antichrist and the system of, of government and control that he created and the false religious idolatry that just permeated the world. After all of that, he says he hears something like the loud voice of a vast multitude in heaven. Now something like, that's that idea of where he hears something and it reminds him of what a vast multitude would, would sound like. Now, ha, have you ever been to a place where there's a vast multitude of people and they're all talking or singing at the same time, and there's just this loud noise, this loud din going on? It's similar to that is what he's talking about. Or if you've ever been somewhere at a conference, like we would just recently, our men's ministry, we went to the Calvary Chapel Men's Conference um, just a short while ago, and i can't tell you how refreshing it was to be in a room with 7000 men right like dudes don't always like to sing it's just a problem some of us have right but i'm in a room with 7000 guys and the voice the the the, the noise that is just rising up as we're all praising god together was just amazing it was just amazing and the picture here of what John is describing, it's this picture of great joy, great excitement, great celebration, worship, praise going up to the Almighty. Now, in these verses, we see that there are several voices, and they come from, from several different places in the chapter, but, but, but collectively, everybody that is here are the attendants. These are those that are at the marriage feast, the marriage celebration of the Lamb. In verses 1 through 3, we see that the voice comes first from this vast multitude Now, of the vast multitude, that phrase, the group of people it's referring to, was first introduced to us in Revelation chapter 7, where it told us that there was a vast multitude John saw which no one could number before the throne and before the Lamb. Now, this vast multitude was seen right after we were introduced to the 144,000 Jewish evangelists. Right? We know these are, these are Jewish individuals because we are given the specific 12 tribes that they are from. So they're not the Jehovah's Witnesses. They're not any other cult group. They are very specifically Jewish people sealed during the tribulation time who I believe then go out and preach the gospel because right after they're introduced, we're introduced to this vast multitude. And in Revelation chapter 7, verse 14 One of the elders, those elders that were already there, tells John who this vast multitude um, was. And he says, these are the ones coming out of the great tribulation. They washed their robes and made them white in the blood of the Lamb. And so that's where we're introduced to this vast multitude as people who didn't believe in Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior prior to the tribulation starting but came to believe in Jesus during the tribulation period. Many of them, of which it tells us in Revelation, were slaughtered for their faith. They were, they were killed for their faith. So in the progression of things, we have the church age that we're in now, people getting saved, the gospel going forth. We believe that, that Christ will then return and rapture the church out of the world at point which the tribulation will start, and there's still people on the earth. And during this seven-year period, there's these 144,000 Jews that are preaching the gospel around the world. There's these two witnesses in Jerusalem that are preaching. It even tells us that there's going to be angels flying through the heavens preaching the gospel, and people are going to get saved. Now, these people are collectively referred to as tribulation saints. These are people who got saved during the tribulation period. That's the first voice. In verse 4 we're introduced to the second voice. It's the 24 elders and the four living creatures collectively. It tells us that they're bowing before the Lord and they're worshiping God. Now the elders Um, are introduced to us the first time in Revelation chapter 4 verse 4. We're going to talk a little bit more about them later. But the elders, I believe, represent the church. They represent the church that is raptured into heaven prior to tribulation starting. These are the people that are today, that have given their life to the Lord today, that are taken out before God's wrath is poured out upon the earth. And then you have these four living creatures which are just very strange looking as the description in revelation is is told to us but they're a very special exalted order of angelic beings that have a very special ministry right there around the throne of god then in verse 5 we hear a voice coming from the throne of god commanding everybody to praise god and then in verse 6 we come back to the vast multitude again Who are still praising god but but when we come back to him it's a little bit louder it's a little bit more intense it's a little bit more crescendoed if you will but in these 10 verses we see that as these voices are singing we see a word that is repeated over and over in this section did you notice what word was repeated over and over in these 10 verses of revelation 19 it's the word hallelujah we're familiar with that word aren't we we say it often Many worship songs we sing have it in their hallelujah. This is a very, very important word. We see it in verse 1, verse 3, verse 4, and verse 6. Three times this word hallelujah is, is sang out by the vast multitude. Once it's sang out by the 24 elders and the four living creatures. This word hallelujah, or in older translations of the Bible, it's alleluia, right? That's just a transliteration of the same word. It's a Hebrew word that essentially means praise the Lord. That's what we're saying when we say hallelujah. We're saying praise the Lord, right? Now, in verses 1 through 3, we're going to see that he is praised for his victory over his enemies. In verses 4 through 6, we're going to see that he is praised for his sovereignty, In verses 7, we're going to see that he's praised for his eternal communion, his eternal communion and connection with his people. Now, this word hallelujah, it actually occurs a lot in the Old Testament, but I was intrigued to find out that in the entire New Testament, the only place this word hallelujah appears is right here in Revelation 19. It doesn't appear anywhere else in the New Testament. And I thought, well, that's interesting. I mean, as much as we hear it in worship songs, I thought it was like every other verse, right? You know? But it's only here in Revelation 19. And I thought, well, that's very, very interesting. You know, what does that mean? What could that mean? Well, I think a part of it is, is in verse 6, we see that the the praise that is being brought by all these voices, it's, it's so loud, it's described like the sound of cascading waters, like this, like the rumbling of loud thunder. And so... What we see is passionate, vibrant, loud worship from God's people. And this praise is so intense. This praise is so loud. This praise is so just overwhelming that hallelujah is the only word that can, that can express um, what is going on. It's the only word that, that is grand enough to express. It's like, it's like through the entire church age. The entire New Testament age, if you will. And then all the way through tribulation. This word biblically was reserved for this very moment. This is how wonderful this time is. This is how magnificent this moment is. And and why? Well, because the most, I believe hallelujah is the most appropriate word to, to celebrate what God has done. To celebrate the pilgrimage of his people. To celebrate that, that the suffering of his people is over. To celebrate that the persecution, all of that, it's done, right? Tribulation's over at this point. We're past it. There's no more suffering and persecution for believing in Jesus. And, and more importantly, his people are home. They're home. They're face to face with the bridegroom. The marriage is being finalized, and all of heaven just rejoices without restraint, and this wonderfully specific word is used to encapsulate the wonder of the moment hallelujah do you guys see how awesome that word is it's not just the thing we throw at the end of a line in a worship song hallelujah praise god for we are home and it is done this is what is taking place here and and incidentally that's exactly how it's going to be when we get to heaven we're not going to get to heaven and be like, oh, shoot, I wanted to get married. I never got to get married. Oh, dang it, I wanted to have kids. I never got to have kids. Some of us think that way, don't we? And, and, and I think it's just, in many levels, natural, right? We have plans. We have goals. We have desires. We have things we want to experience in this world, and then we get saved, and we're like, we can't wait to get to heaven. Just hold on until I do this. I'm telling you, what we see here is, is when we get to heaven, not for a second are we going to go, oh man, I didn't get to do that or do this, Right? I didn't get to. Ex-. It's going to be hallelujah everywhere. It's going to be joy and celebration and exuberance because the best has arrived. Being with Jesus in paradise forever, face to face, every possible experience here on this earth is nothing in comparison is nothing. And so they all celebrate. And they celebrate for a few different reasons here, as I mentioned. The first one is they're celebrating for their salvation. Look in verse one. It says this vast multitude, they say, Hallelujah! And they say, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God. Now today, even today, we honor and celebrate God because of his authority to bring salvation to us. We celebrate him for that. We praise him for that. Not that he, not only that he brought it, but he has the authority to bring it. He has the right, the power, the the everything to decide how salvation comes, what is required for salvation, right? People argue that all the time. Well, I don't think it's fair. God requires <laughs> you're not God. He's God. We're his creation. It's enough that He even created a means for us to be restored to Him, let alone everything else that comes from that. We're going to talk about that on Wednesday. But, but the power that He has, the salvation He's brought to us, and salvation involves a lot. You know what I mean? Like, when, when you say, I'm saved, what do you mean? What do you think of? Most might think primarily of one aspect of salvation when they say, I'm saved. What we might typically think of when we utter that phrase, we tell someone, I'm saved, we think, I am saved from the penalty of sin, right? I'm saved from the penalty. That's that's what happens the moment anybody genuinely asks Jesus to be their Savior. When they come to that place where they are radically choosing to to yield their life, to let go of their vices and their sins, to let go of their own will and say, God, I don't want the judgment. (laughs) Like, I'm so sorry. Forgive me. We are saved from the penalty of death. The penalty that is due is erased from our ledger because Jesus made the payment on the cross, and it's applied to you. It's done, right? You're saved. And that's a wonderful thing. The idea is that I'm never going to have to go to hell (laughs) For breaking God's law. That's something to rejoice over. Praise God. Hallelujah. But that's not all that salvation is. Salvation means so much more than just being saved from the penalty of sin. It also means that you're being, present tense, ongoing, saved from the power of sin. Day by day, moment by moment. So past tense, the moment you accepted Jesus, you were saved from the penalty. The ledger was, was, was wiped out. But then every day forward from that, you are then being saved from the power of sin. Where, where because of the power of the Holy Spirit living within you, the Bible tells us, you now have the ability to say no to sin. Not that we do in every circumstance. Sometimes we know I should say no, and we say yes anyways. Different Bible study. But we're saved from the power. Prior to Christ, we were slaves to sin, the Bible tells us. You couldn't say no. You thought you could say no, but you were really in the grip of sin and Satan. But the Holy Spirit comes into your life, you're set free, and you could say, no, I don't want to do that anymore. That's not who I am anymore. And you have this power you didn't have before to say no. And and incidentally, that's one of the major lies of the devil in the life of a believer. You can't say no. You have to give in. You have to do it. And it's a lie from the pit of hell because you have the power. If you have been saved, if the Holy Spirit dwells within you, you have the ability to say no to sin. But then salvation also means that one day you will be saved from the very presence of sin itself. That the temptations won't even exist. There will be no presence of sin. There will be no devil tempting you. There will be no flesh tempting you. You will be completely saved from the presence. And that's the ultimate effect of salvation in their lives. And this is what we're celebrating in Revelation 19. Right? The culmination of all of that. And they're worshiping. And they're praising God for it. So they celebrate him for salvation, and then they celebrate God's judgment. And we've seen this a couple times already through Revelation, right? Verse 2, it says, they said, Hallelujah, salvation, glory, and power belong to our God because his judgments are true and righteous. Because he has judged the notorious prostitute who corrupted the earth with her sexual immorality, and he has avenged the blood of his servants that was on her hands. A second time they said, Hallelujah, her smoke ascends forever and ever. And so we, we mentioned this in our last study, that, that when we look at this type of stuff, um, we can look at it and go, man, that, 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 man that's kind of insensitive, <laughs> right? And, and although this might seem insensitive, it might seem uncaring, it might seem callous, right, that in the face of all the devastation and all the destruction and all that has happened on earth and the loss of Babylon and, and all of the, 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 just the horror of all of that that heaven is rejoicing and celebrating and some might go well that seems kind of mean but you got to have context you got to have understanding you got to have perspective because the fall the fall of all that babylon stood for is what is being rejoiced here all that babylon stood for its false blasphemous idolatry its rejection of god the one true God, and its elevation of self as God with its indulgence and its excesses and its abuse of power, its persecution and violent slaughter of those who believed in Jesus, especially during the tribulation period, right? We've read in the past that, that when the mark of the beast comes on the scene and the image of the beast comes on the scene, that there will be enforced worship, and if you don't worship the image, you will be executed, you will be killed, And the people saying, no, I'm not going to worship that image, are going to be the people who are saying, I'm not doing it because of Jesus. The the vehement rejection of Jesus alone as God, that is going to be during the tribulation period. And this is all that Babylon stands for. And again, this in the face of the 144,000 witnesses and the two witnesses and the angels flying through the air. The, The brutality That Babylon stood for, especially when it's brutality against those who stand for Jesus. You remember when the two witnesses were killed in Jerusalem, it says they just left their bodies to rot in the street. The whole world saw it, and then they had a worldwide celebration, giving gifts to one another. All of that fallen, done, judged, over. Uh Yeah, hallelujah. Absolutely hallelujah. Hallelujah. It says, his judgments are true and righteous. He's being worshiped because his judgments are true and righteous. That phrase there means there's, there's no question, there's no argument on whether what he has done is right and good. There is no question, there's no place, there's no opportunity to go, well, maybe he was a little harsh, no. It's gonna be absolutely understood that it was absolutely right and appropriate what God did, and it's to be celebrated. And then in verse four, We see the elders and the creatures worshiping God for his salvation and his judgment along with this vast multitude. It says, Then the 24 elders and the four living creatures fell down and worshiped God, who is seated on the throne, saying, Amen and Hallelujah. Now, these 24 elders, as I mentioned earlier, they were first introduced to us in Revelation chapter 4, verse 4. This was right after John was caught up into heaven prior to the tribulation time uh, beginning. And it told us there in Revelation 4.4, as John was seeing the throne room of God, it says, around the throne were 24 thrones, and on the throne sat 24 elders dressed in white clothes with golden crowns on their heads. Now again, these 24 elders are in heaven with God prior to the tribulation happening, all right? And I believe that these represent the church, the church that is raptured into heaven in the same way that John was called up into heaven. They're already there in heaven prior to the tribulation. This is the church, the church of today's age, raptured into heaven prior to God pouring out his wrath upon the earth. Now, again, and I've mentioned this, I think, a bazillion times throughout Revelation, I understand there are different interpretations of this, and there are different views on who these people are and what they represent, and and I respect that, but this is my view. This is what I see in the Scriptures here. But to answer the question, why do I believe these 24 elders represent the church, the first is that they're called elders. That word elders is is a word in the Bible that is only ever applied to human men. It's never applied to angels, and that's one of the alternate interpretations. Oh, these elders are angels. Well, there's nowhere in Scripture do we ever see angels being called elders, all right? They're called other things, but never elders. It tells us that these 24 elders sit on thrones around the throne of God. This seems to indicate that they are ruling with Christ, who is on that throne, right? It's God on the throne. We're going to see the Trinity together and the Trinity separate all the way through Revelation. But the church is repeatedly said throughout Scripture to rule and reign with Christ in heaven. And so we see these 24 elders sitting on thrones, ruling and reigning there in the throne room of God with God. It says they're dressed in white, and this is something that is commonly used to symbolize saved people. That when someone gives their life to the Lord, um, it's the righteousness of Christ that is imputed onto people, and it is seen as pure white clothing and linen. And so again, these aren't angels or something else. These are symbolized as people who are saved. And then they're uh, wearing golden crowns. Crowns are another thing that nowhere in Scripture are ever promised to angels. Nowhere in Scripture do we ever see angels wearing crowns, right? But conversely, there's a lot said about the church, God's people, given crowns as rewards for their life of obedience to God here on earth. Paul says that crowns are given to those who win the race. Scripture tells us in 2 Timothy 4.8 and James 1.12, it talks about these crowns being rewarded to God's people. And so we see these 24 elders sitting on thrones, dressed in white, wearing the crowns. So that's why I believe that they represent the church. And then additionally, in Revelation chapter 5, we see these same elders. It tells us that they're holding up bowls to God, and these bowls represent the prayers of God's people, the prayers of the church. And so elders, we understand in New Testament theology, elders are representatives of the church, representative of the church. They're the people that, that serve on behalf of God. And so, again, this picture of these elders being people who represent the church as a whole, we see that they're in heaven prior to the seven seals, prior to the seven trumpets, prior to the seven bowls, which is the tribulation period. And that's why I believe in a pre-tribulation rapture of the church. I believe there's a picture here of that. And so these elders and these four creatures, which are these very strange angelic creatures, it tells us that they they fell down and worshiped God here. And they also said, hallelujah. That picture of falling down is, is the idea of prostrating oneself before a king. Right? In, in ancient times, you would go into the king's throne room and you would fall down on your faith as a, face as a sign of reverence and respect. And that's the idea here. So verse 5. Now we see the third voice. A voice came from the throne saying, praise our God, all his servants, and the ones who fear him, both small and great. This is another thing that has a couple different interpretations. Some believe that this voice coming from the throne is the voice of Jesus himself. Um, I believe it's more likely to be a voice of one of the angels that serve around the throne because he says, praise our God, right? And then right after that, he says, all his servants. And that phrase, all his servants, is like inclusive of the speaker, right? Right? Hey, everybody, let's praise our God, all his servants, me included. And so this is why I believe that this is a a picture of possibly one of the angels around the throne. But what I do see here is what a fantastic picture of what being a worship leader is here, right? What do worship leaders do? They stand before the people of God, and they draw these people of God in. They lead the people of God into praising our Lord, and so as they worship leaders and worship teams, as they get up to, to lead in song, they're not just like, hey, I'm going to play a song for you, hope you like it, right? What they're doing is, they, is they're leading you, they're, they're instructing, they're commanding, if you will, um, much like what's happening here. What they're telling the body, praise our God, all of us, his servants together, praise with us. And that is the goal of worship, to glorify God, not to glorify ourselves. Worship is not to well. I need to get in the right headspace for the Bible study. Pastor Nathan teaches for a long time. It's you know, no, that's not what worship's for. Worship isn't to manipulate us emotionally. Although, yeah, music does have an emotional element, and that's okay. But the point of worship is to glorify God. Is to communicate to God how we feel about him and for him to to let him know to to ascribe to him all that he is and just say god you are so awesome that's what worship is all about and that's what's being commanded here praise our god when it says the ones who fear him both small and great that word fear is reverence respect awe at his majesty and holiness and so verse six we've celebrated his salvation we've celebrated his judgment and now we celebrate the dominion of god where John says, Then I heard something like the voice of a vast multitude, like the sound of cascading waters, and like the rumbling of loud thunder, saying, Hallelujah, because our Lord God, the Almighty, reigns. Although the, the, the singer, or the speaker, if you will, has uh, um, you know, changed through this section, Right? First we saw John hearing the vast multitude, then we saw him hearing the 24 elders and the four living creatures, then he heard a voice from the throne, and now we're back to the vast multitude. Even though that has been changing, the idea here is this is a unified, altogether collective moment of praise going on in heaven, right? John is simply describing the elements of this celebration as he is focusing in on them. So the first thing he described was this vast multitude. And then he goes, oh, and then the 24 elders and the living creatures. And, and then, whoa, I heard a voice. And then, and then that vast multitude, they just got louder, right? It, so it's not that they're doing it in turn. It's not like they're doing a row, row, row your boat, you know, kind of like each one's doing a verse after. It's, it's all happening together, this collective celebration. But verse 6 does give us the idea that the worship is crescendoing in volume as he describes this sound of cascading waters and the rumblings of loud thunder, you know? And I've said before, and I'll say it again, if you don't like loud worship, heaven might be a little difficult for you. (laughs) Um, It's going to be loud. Now, I think what loud is to you is how you're going to hear it, right? It's going to be perfect. It's going to be perfection, right? What loud is to me for most people is like, why are you trying to kill me? And so what's going to be loud for me, I'm going to be like, oh, this is amazing. And it's going to be loud for you too. And oh, this is going to be amazing. right? It's going to be wonderful. It's going to be perfect. But the greatest height of praise on earth is, is, is a dim shadow of what heaven is going to be. The most exuberant worship concert, worship moment, worship time that you can have anywhere here on earth is, is a pale comparison to what it's going to be like in heaven and this crescendo comes as we're we're reaching the consummation of all of, of of God's plan for history, right? Now Spurgeon he described this this way, and I thought it was a neat quote. He said, "We ought not to worship God in a half half hearted sort of way, as if it were now our duty to bless God, but but we really felt it to be a weary business, and we would have to get through it as quickly as we could and be done with it. You know, the sooner the better." He says, "No." No. He goes, all that is within me, bless his holy name. Come, my heart, wake up and summon all the powers which wait upon thee. Mechanical worship, he says, is easy but worthless. Come, rouse yourself, my brother. Rouse thyself, O my own soul. I think Spurgeon understood what worship was and he's celebrating. The people here are celebrating. They're celebrating that the dominion, the rule of God, his reign has finally come. Now, you might be saying, well, hasn't God always reigned, right? (laughs) He is God Almighty after all. Um, Yeah, but God at times has yielded authority and control. Especially during the tribulation period, we see that, that he gave evil men and evil spirits lots of freedom, lots of authority, lots of ability to, to do what they were going to do. He, he gave that over. But, but here in Revelation 19, what we're celebrating is that's done. We've reached the end of that. Wickedness is no longer allowed to, to, to rule and reign. Evil is no longer allowed to rule and reign, right? Those prayers that many of us have prayed over the years when we hear about some horrible crime, some, some terrible thing taking place, and we go, God, why would you allow that? This is the moment where he says, I'm not allowing it anymore. It's done. He's judged it. It has fallen. And now he is in full control of everything without any of what was prior. Now, you'll notice he is called here the Almighty. That word Almighty means having all power, all rulership. It means having power unlimited in every capacity. That's who God is, the Almighty. I want to encourage you to think about, think about that. The next time you think you can't carry your burdens and your problems to him, that He is the Almighty. He is unlimited in every capacity. I think sometimes we're struggling with things, and we're like, I, I can't pray about that. God's not going to listen to me. God doesn't care about that. Sometimes we're even tempted to think, oh, He can't, he can't do anything about that, Right? A lot of us go through extended challenges in life, and, and we're praying for people, and we're like, gosh, it's, it's been a year, five years, ten years, and their heart's not changing, and, and God, are you ever going to... And, 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 and we start to think, maybe God can't. I want to encourage you to put those thoughts out of your head. God is unlimited in every capacity. You guys remember the story of Abraham and Sarah? When he was about 100, she was in her 90s. God shows up one day and says, Hey, you guys are going to have a kid. And that's exactly what Sarah started doing. She laughed, it tells us in Scripture. She laughed. I'm 90. That ship has sailed, God. Biological impossibility we're talking about here. And so she laughs. And I love the story because God goes why are you laughing? And she goes, uh, I I didn't laugh. And he's like, uh, yes, you did. I heard you. Right? But then he asked a very important question. He asked her, is anything too hard for the Lord? Is anything too hard for the Lord? You know, when you face difficult situations where the The resolution or the solution seems impossible. You can't forget that with God all things are possible. All things are possible with God. I wish I could tell you how, but I can't. I wish I could tell you this is how God's going to... You know, sometimes in in counseling, the the toughest times for me as a pastor and in, in counseling is is when someone is is desperate and they're asking, like, how is this going to work? When is this going to change? And outside of times where God has just given me supernatural revelation, there's times where I'm like, I don't know. And that's heartbreaking for me because I just, I want to fix it. I want to tell you what the answer is. And, And really, the answer is, with God, all things are possible. Is anything too hard for the Lord? No. So trust Him. Trust Him. That's the idea. That's the counsel. And this is is what He said to Sarah. And we'll go, yeah, but we cannot measure what's possible with God by our own limitations and understanding. We can't. Nothing is impossible for Him, no matter how impossible it seems for us. And if He hasn't answered it yet or if He hasn't resolved it yet, then it's a process of waiting and and exercising that supernatural patience that you also got to pray for. God, help me wait. Help me trust. So now, verse 7, we get to the time where they celebrate that the time has come for the Lamb to be joined for His people. He says, let us be glad, rejoice, and give Him glory because the marriage of the Lamb has come and His bride has prepared herself. She was given fine linen to wear, bright and pure, for the fine linen represents the righteous acts of the saints. Then He said to me, write, blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. And he also said to me, these words of God are true. Now, there's a lot of symbolism here. And, and, and because this union between, between God and his people is so close, it's so intimate, God has chosen to use the, the, the marriage between a man and a woman to be, be that picture. That's what Ephesians 5 teaches us, right? That the, the picture of the relationship God wants to have with you Look at a a marriage between a man and a wife. The closeness, the union, the intimacy, the the, all of it, it's like world. That's why God cares so much about Christian marriages because they are living testimonies of the relationship God wants to have with the world. And when a Christian marriage is falling apart, the world goes, aha! Any relationship with God must then also fall apart, right? There's, There's a witness to that. And that's why God has so much to say about marriages and how husbands and wives treat each other and dwell together and love one another and all of that stuff. But here in this, we see that it's the marriage of the Lamb. And the Lamb is Jesus, right? He is is called that numerous times. He is the Lamb who was slain. But in this context here, the Lamb is the bridegroom in this wedding, and then, of course, the bride here, the bride, those that have prepared themselves, it's, it's, it's the church of Jesus Christ. It's his people. It's those that have been saved and born again, those that have put their trust in him. Ephesians 5, 25 and 27 talks about this. 2 Corinthians eleven two 2 talks about this. And we're seeing it here again in Revelation 19. But when you go through Scripture, there, there's, there's about 700 some odd different titles for Jesus Christ. He's called numerous different things, different titles for him. but why here at his wedding did he choose the lamb? right why, why was why is that the title chosen? Um, I believe it's because when we see him as the lamb, it brings to mind all that he did for us, his bride. It brings to mind his shed blood. it brings to mind his great sacrifice. So, you know, that, that, that kindness, right? The Bible says that it's His kindness that draws us to repentance, right? When we realize we've sinned, and then we realize that God loved us so much, He goes, look, I, I died for your sin, I paid the price, right? That, those are the things that, that initially drew most of us to Him. I haven't met very many people, there are some out there, but I haven't met very many people that, that came to their moment of salvation through a wonderfully logic, apologetic argument. Now, it does happen. I'm not gonna I'm not trying to in any way diminish apologetics, it's important. But overwhelmingly in my own experience, the people that I know that have come to Christ, although they had apologetic questions and they were like, What about the Trinity? And what you know and all this stuff? When they come to the moment where they go, I have done this and he's willing to forgive me of that, that is the moment that most commonly I see is the moment of salvation for people where they realize how much he loved them. And that's why I believe he uses the picture here in this wedding feast as it's the lamb. It's not the the marriage feast of the conqueror. It's not the marriage feast of the, the, I mean, just all the different times. It's the marriage feast of the lamb. Because as we are joined to him, we never want to forget what he did for us. Never want to forget what he did for us. But, but what's the deal? What's the focus on the feast here, right? Um, this is where we need to look at ancient Jewish wedding customs to get a better understanding. And, and so I'll go through this a little fast. But back in the day, surprise, surprise, there was not much dating, if any dating at all. There was no apps. <gasps> right? Right? There was no swipe left, swipe right. There was none of that, right? Um, in ancient Judaism and in many ancient cultures, marriages were prearranged by parents of children when the kids were still young. They were prearranged is this family and this family would, would say, you know what, we're going to arrange that, that my son and your daughter, when they are of age, that they, are, they will marry one another and, and, you know, continue that for, for different reasons. Um, and, and even today, in many cultures, pre-arranged marriages are still the norm. Now, I know that, that the idea of a pre-arranged marriage has kind of like a, um, uh, a negative connotation today. You know, um, I don't have time to dig into all of that, but I will say this, that there is a difference between a pre-arranged marriage and a forced marriage. Okay, there, there's a difference between the two. Um, but... Suffice it to say that I read a quote from a guy who grew up in India, a Christian man, and he said, it wasn't until I got to America that I had ever heard of the concept of divorce. And in in his interview and stuff, one of the things he said is, is in Eastern cultures, commitment comes before the emotion of love. Right? It's commitment that leads to love. And so the idea of what love is, is a commitment to another that is then followed by emotion that comes with that commitment. And he said in Western cultures, what he's seen is that love is, is seen as an emotion first before a commitment. Thus, commitment in Western cultures is based upon whether or not you feel the emotion of love. And that's why in Western cultures in America, the divorce rate's like 50%, even within the church because people think, well, if I don't feel the emotion anymore, why am I gonna waste my time being married to this person? And so the commitment is sacrificed because the emotion isn't felt. Interestingly enough, in 2021, there was a study done on um, uh, pre-arranged marriages around the world. And what they found is that in, in, in uh, most of the cases or the cases that they studied in pre-arranged marriages, they found that the divorce rate was 4%. But in non prearranged marriages, it's 50%, you know? Um, again, I don't have time to dig all into the details of it, but to get back to the context of ancient Jewish wedding customs, in, in a wedding in ancient Judaism, the couple was prearranged and there was the idea that this is the person you're committing to and, and, and the emotion will follow. But when the actual time for the marriage came, there was kind of like three phases to the marriage. Phase one was, was called the betrothal. It was the formal engagement process which lasted about a year. And so the, the people had come of age and they'd go, okay, betrothal process has begun, for the next year, you guys are going to court. You're going to get to know each other even more. There's no physical contact of any kind. You're just going to talk. It's that whole idea. And and in the culture, this betrothal period was so important that the only way you could break the engagement was to actually write a certificate of divorce. right? It was, like, it was like you were married already. The commitment was already there, but they were developing the relationship through the, the courting process. And in that first phase, you lived on the promise that in a year's time, we will be fully married, right? Phase two was the wedding day. There was a day where the bridegroom was like, all right, today's the day. Maybe he was getting his house ready. Maybe he's doing things. And he's like, all right. So he would get dressed up and he would get all his dudes with them and and they would go to the bride's house and they would get the bride and they would take her and the groom the groom would take her and and they would take her back to his house to then have what was phase three but this whole idea of the wedding day the challenge for the bride was that she had no no idea exactly when the bridegroom was going to show up right nowadays In many cases, and if I'm putting you on blast, I apologize, but in many cases, it's the wedding and everybody's waiting for the bride to show up. She's late, you know, she's still getting ready. What's going on, right? In those days, in cultures like this, it was the bride was like, I've got to be ready because he could show up any moment and I have to be ready when he shows up. And so she was all dressed and ready to go. And and of course, there was an idea that like we're in the season when he he can show up, but I don't know exactly when that time's going to be. And so the bride would get herself prepared, get herself ready for this moment that would come suddenly. And then phase three is what was called the marriage feast, and that's what we're looking at here in Revelation chapter 19, that the bride or the bridegroom would bring the bride, they would come to his home, and then there'd be this huge celebration, and song would break out, the celebration would ensue, this was the culmination of of all that we've been waiting for, and this is the idea of, of Revelation 19, that the feast is taking place, right? We're in phase three. After which, Jesus then returns to earth with us, his bride, sets up his kingdom, and then we have what is called the millennial kingdom of Christ here on earth, which is somewhat like a thousand-year honeymoon, if you will, with Christ on earth ruling and reigning. Now, you'll notice in verse 7, it says that the bride has prepared herself, right? Um, She has prepared herself. And you might go, well, how do we do that? Because in the culture, the bride had to get ready. The groom can show up any time, right? I believe, you know, when you look at the phases, you know, we're currently in phase one of the marriage as Christians here on earth. We're in the betrothal period. There's no physical contact. We can't even see Jesus physically, right? He's in heaven at the right hand of the Father. But we're talking to him through his word. We pray. We're getting to know him. We're building that relationship, and we need to be ready for the day he shows up to take us. Phase two is going to be the rapture of the church. When he says, all right, I'm here, let's go, Thessalonians talks about the trumpet's going to sound, he's going to call us, we're going to meet the Lord in the air, and then there's going to be this phase three, the feast, the celebration. Now, some commentators look at the moment we're raptured in the church, that's when the feast starts, because uh, culturally, the feast can last many days. There's cases where the wedding feast lasted weeks of celebration until the consummation of the marriage and that idea. And so some believe that that when the church is raptured in a pre-tribulation understanding that the feast begins, and then for seven years we're celebrating, And then now we're here at the end of tribulation where we're now going to celebrate the final moment, that the feast is done, the, the wedding is, is, is finished and finalized. So anyways, but it says that the bride prepared herself. And when we ask the question, well, how do we prepare ourselves? First... You prepare yourself by by genuinely putting your full faith and trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation. That's the first step. To be the bride of Christ, you've got to become part of the bride of Christ, and and you become part of the bride of Christ, the church, by giving your life to Him, by acknowledging that you've broken His law, by calling out to Him and saying, God, save me. That's the process there. It's following him now and giving up everything that he says no to. It's saying, God, I'm going to yield my my sins. I'm I'm going to step away. I'm going to let go of all that and be obedient to you. That's the first step of the process. But verse 8, you'll see there, it says, she was given fine linen to wear, and it represents the righteous acts of the saints. You see, every single Christian believer, saved Christian believer, is going to be at this wedding. Because the Bible tells us it's through faith that we are saved, not by works At least anybody should boast. But the bridal garment we're given to wear seems to be somewhat connected to or based upon our preparation, the life we live uh, here and now, our life of obedience to the Lord. There's different places where God talks about rewards given out to those in, in, in uh, a reflection of the life they lived here on earth. So although we are saved by faith, There is this concept in Scripture that the position we have in the millennial kingdom, the rewards we are granted um, are determined by how we lived our life here and now, how we used our time, how we used our talents, our gifts, all of that. Paul in 1 Corinthians speaks of rewards for the work we do here on earth in obedience to Jesus Christ. And he mentions in 1 Corinthians, he says, Each one's work will be tested for quality. Right? What you did in your life here as a Christian, it's going to be tested for quality, meaning was it about and for Jesus or was it really for and about you? Did you spend your time, talents, and resources on selfish pursuits or did you spend it in obedience to God doing what he, what he would want you to do, what he's called you to do? And Paul says in 1 Corinthians that some people's works won't result in any rewards. He says specifically they will experience loss. And they will be saved as if by fire, meaning the idea is like you just, you just made it in. So if you're saved, you're as saved as any other saved person is. You're saved. You're going to heaven. Amen. Hallelujah. But when it comes to reward, when it comes to position in the future kingdom, some aren't going to have a whole lot stored up. You guys understand the concept there? So in the picture of this garment that is given by Jesus to the bride to wear, um. Your garment's gonna be determined on how you lived your life for Jesus. You're saved, you're at the marriage feast, you're going to heaven, you're there. But there's a step after that in coming to to your reward. And so the hope is that every believer grows and matures in this life. This life here in their service and obedience to God um, that they grow to the place where their service and obedience to God just becomes natural part of their expression of faith, where we live faithful in choosing selflessness and generosity and, and sacrificial service over selfishness, over greed, over devotion to self, over anything else. And, and the results of all that is, seems to be what we're clothed with at the marriage feast. And so let's close real quick on verse 10. It says, then I fell at his feet, speaking, the angel. speaking of the angel. John fell at the feet of the angel to worship him, but he said to me, don't do that. I'm a fellow servant with you and your brothers and sisters who hold firmly to the testimony of Jesus. Worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. Now, I'm not entirely sure why someone like John the Apostle would do this, right? Um, some seem to think that, that he felt the angel represented God at this moment. Um, some commentators think or suggest that John was just, just overwhelmed with excitement and awe at everything he was seeing. But regardless, he fell down at the feet of the angel and, and to worship him, it says. But we know, and I believe John knows too, worship is to go only to God in any and all circumstances. But notice the angel didn't go, okay, you could worship to me and then, and then I'll take that to God because God's busy. He's too busy for you to worship him directly, so I'll serve as... The angel doesn't say that. The angel doesn't say, you need to make your confession to me, and I'll take it to God. The angel doesn't say, go talk to Mary, Jesus' mom, because Jesus is kind of busy right now getting married. He doesn't say any of that. When it comes to worship, it goes to God and God alone. Yeah, this angel is a supernatural being... But he says, I'm a fellow servant. The angel, this supernatural being, probably of incredible power, is like, I am a fellow servant. Before God Almighty, this angel is saying to John, we're we're on the same level. We're created beings called to worship God and God alone. And so he says, worship God because the testimony of Jesus is the spirit of prophecy. That's an interesting phrase here. Um, But the idea is that everything that has existed and ever will exist, is about Jesus. It's all about Jesus, God in the flesh. It's always been about Jesus, it will always be about Jesus. Every word of prophecy pointed to Jesus. Prophecy proves the truth of Jesus. Prophecy at its very heart is designed to unfold the beauty and loveliness of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. It all is about him. Now some of you have heard this before, but for the sake of you that haven't, I wanna go through this real quick. About a third of the entire Bible is prophecy, predictive prophecy. And in the Bible, there's about 330 predictions, very specific predictions regarding the Messiah, Jesus Christ. There are predictions about his actions, about his character, how he would live, where he was born, how he would die, his burial, his resurrection, about 330, right? A man named Peter Stoner, who was a mathematician, wondered, what are the odds of one man fulfilling 330 prophecies about the Messiah? And as he started to embark on that he went 330s a lot. Let me start with 8. What are the odds of one man fulfilling 8 of the 330 prophecies born in Bethlehem, you know, all of these very specific things. And so when he mathed it all out, what he found is that the odds of one man fulfilling 8 of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled is 1 to 10 to the 17th power. That's 10 with 17 zeros after it. That's the odds of one man fulfilling just eight of the prophecy, and Jesus fulfilled many, many more. And some people go, okay, 10 with 17 zeros. How do I visualize that? This is how he visualized it. If you took the entire state of Texas, which is massive, and you filled the entire state of Texas two feet deep with silver dollars, right? Um, Silver dollars, yeah, silver dollars. I don't want somebody to come back to me and go, it wasn't silver dollars. Silver dollars, okay? Two feet deep, the whole state. Miles and miles and miles, the entire state, two feet deep. And as you were filling it, you took one of those silver dollars, you marked it with some, some mark, and you just tossed it somewhere in the state. Then you took a person, blindfolded them, took them to the border, and said, wander the entire state of Texas, wander through, dig through this two feet deep of silver dollars, and the first one you grab has to be the one with the mark on it. That's the odds of one person fulfilling eight of the prophecies that Jesus fulfilled. Then he went on to say, what about 16? And, and I don't have time to get into that because it's just insane. But the point is this. Muhammad, Buddha, Krishna, Shiva, the 330 million gods of Hinduism, none of them have the, prophecy, the testimony of prophecy. Prophecy. None of them have that. None have the testimony of perfectly fulfilled prophecy like Jesus Christ does. That is why I believe Christianity is true and all the others are false. Prophecy authenticates Christ. And so the angel says, John, write this down. Blessed are those invited to the marriage feast of the Lamb. The invitation has gone out. The invitation has been going out. Have you accepted it? Will you accept it? God has sent the invitation to you. He wants you to be a part of the bride of Christ. He wants you to be a part of his family. And every single time you've heard the gospel preached, the invitation has gone out to you. What's really great about the invitation is the price to go has already been paid too. There's no ticket price, there's no cover charge. You get to go for free. You just have to accept his payment on your behalf. And God loves you so much. He, he chose this metaphor, a bridegroom loving his bride, to show you how much he loves you. And that should strike joy into your heart. You know, most grooms I've spoken to over the years, they don't remember much of their wedding day without seeing pictures or videos, right? Um, they don't remember the flowers, the color of the flowers. They don't ever remember what the pastor says. <laughs> They don't necessarily always remember the color of the dresses or the songs played, right? There's, uh, I don't remember all that. But I haven't yet met one groom that doesn't remember the moment they saw their bride. The moment she came out the door, started walking down the aisle, arrayed in her wedding gown, ready to meet him. Not a single one has forgotten that moment. Everything else mm, but that, they don't forget. Church. You are the bride of Christ. Jesus has eyes only for you. He loves you so much. He loves you with a love that is beyond all understanding. And if you're not a part of that, the invitation goes out to you to be part of that, to experience his love, to experience his salvation forever. Don't reject that. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much for your word. We thank you so much for everything, Lord, you've, you've done for us, everything you give us, everything you do for us, everything you will do for us, God. Lord, we trust you in all things. And God, we, we know that, that we're in this period where we're betrothed to you, Lord. We're in, this, we're in the engagement time right now, God, because we can't see you physically. But God, we will one day, and we so look forward to that. Lord, we know that during this time, our call is to get to know you so that we become more like you, that we would share you with this world of, of, of evil and hate and, and a world full of people who just hate you, their creator. And God, we look forward to the day and the moment where you will show up and take us because it is the wedding day. And Lord, I pray that each one of us would live lives where we are ready for that, God, that we wouldn't be caught unaware. Lord, you even had parables about that in the Gospels. But Lord, we would be ready, not left behind, but ready, ready to be received up to you in the air, God, invited to that wedding feast, where our forever in perfection and paradise and joy with you will be fulfilled. Lord, we look forward to that moment. We look forward to that feast and that celebration. We look forward to the coming kingdom. But God, most of all, we look forward to Your face. To see You. To stand with You. In a perfect love. With a perfect salvation. And if you don't know Jesus today, just call out to Him and say, God, forgive me of my sins. I've sinned against you. I deserve judgment. But Lord, I, I hear the invitation. I hear your invitation to come. And Lord, I am dirty, I am filthy with sin, but forgive me. I believe you will forgive me, God, because you love me, cleanse me, give me a robe of pure white linen Help me to live a life of obedience to you until you come. That, God, I would one day stand with you face to face. Father, we just thank you, God. Help us to tell more people about you because there are so many that need to hear the truth. Help us to live for you, God, in obedience. Fill us with your joy. Fill us with your peace. Fill us with an eager anticipation for your coming. Can't wait to see you, Lord. We love you so much. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Let's worship, guys.